Hello, it's Natalia and welcome to Beehive Podcast, the place where insightful conversations with the most extraordinary people take place. Each episode is an opportunity to explore my guests' personal journeys, lifestyle choices and aspects of their personal success formula. Join me by subscribing now and enjoy the listening. Now I'm so excited to announce this. Courtesy of HWM Aston Martin, all Beehive listeners and subscribers have the chance to win a Silverstone Aston Martin driving experience. This will be an opportunity to get to grips with the Aston Martin Vantage at their Silverstone facility using the Stowe Race circuit. With the guidance of Aston Martin Pro drivers, you will experience the incredible performance and handling of this British-built iconic sports car. The instructions on how to enter the competition will be announced during the course of the interview. So tune in and good luck. Today I am welcomed warmly once again. I'm becoming a regular guest in this place, which I can't complain about. This is HWM Aston Martin dealership, one of the oldest dealership of Aston Martin. And today I am with the men. Um, who is behind this brand right now and making this dealership success, Guy Jenner. Guy, thank you for welcoming me in this place again. And I can't wait to talk more today about the history and heritage of the brand, but also to find out more about your road to success and ultimately what success looks like for you and what it means. Brilliant. Well, welcome, Natalia. Thank you so much. Thank you. I want to kick off with a very open question. How did this all start for you, Guy? So for me, I, um, I've always loved cars. So even as a five or six year old boy, my reading, my recreational reading was car magazines. And I'd, I'd collect brochures and I'd, it was all really quite sad, but it's what I loved. And I just had this thing for cars. And, and so, as I got to the point where I was a teenager and I needed to get a part-time job, as you do, I saw this opportunity at a Mercedes-Benz dealer and they needed help over weekends. I thought, well, that, kind of, that sounds better than stacking shelves at Sainsbury's. Mm. I'll give it a go. I'll apply. So I applied. And this was 1996. And um, I looked like something or someone that I wouldn't employ. <laughs> You know, I wasn't particularly oh, well presented. <laughs> I had in the nineties. The fashion was to have this, have mid-center partings. You know, like a, <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I, yeah. And so I had hair down to here, but I went, I went in and talked to them, and um, they saw something in me, and maybe that's just because I could talk about all their cars and um, clearly had a passion for it. So. Mm they kind of gave me this chance and and so that became my weekend job Saturdays and Sundays I'd go to the car dealership and and spend my weekends talking to people going out in cars and and as I got my driver's license because I was 16 to begin with Mm -hmm. then I got to drive some cars which you know when when you love cars dream to suddenly get behind the wheel of 50,000 pound cars at 17 it was just out of this world and so I just got more and more into it from there so it was really exciting for me um and i i just i felt grateful to have the opportunity so i just i made the most of it so you started with mercedes yes and how long you've stayed there for 
So was, my intention was that I was, um, it was just going to be my part-time job and then I wanted to be a motoring journalist. So I wanted to go into automotive journalism. And um, then they said, well, yeah, you, you know, you could go to uni after, after you've done your A-levels or you could, you could work here full-time and you could have a company car and good earning opportunity. And suddenly okay. I thought, oh, well, that sounds quite tempting actually. And, and I thought, well, worst ways I can, I can do it for a couple of years and if it doesn't work out, then I can just revert to plan A. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, I, I just felt like it was an opportunity that had been presented to me. So I, over the next few years, I just, I just went all out. I did everything I possibly could to be as good as I could possibly be. Um, because, you know, it, I, I, again, I felt, I felt grateful to have a chance and that somebody had taken a chance on me. Um, and it worked out really well. And I, I stayed with Mercedes-Benz for, for eight years and I kind of progressed up um, quite quickly. But again, that, that, that's... It, the interesting thing about the motoring industry is everything you do is very measurable, so very clear in terms of your, your performance. So what I mean by that is if you... If you meet an accountant who's really good, actually, you've, you've got to work with them for a long period to understand just how good they are. And that, that it's, the, the, the metrics aren't quite so measurable in as much as by comparison, if you're selling cars or finance or managing a department, it, it's very performance driven. Right. So, you know, if you do well, you progress. And that, that was an exciting opportunity for me as well. So you were hitting those bars easily, the targets for sales, and obviously made success instantly, pretty much. Yeah, but I, w- I wouldn't say it was easily. I was just prepared to put work a load hard. of time into it and work work really hard. So I, um, yeah, I, I, it, but the one thing that was natural to me was because I'd spent my life with my head in car magazines and living and breathing cars. I was able to go to work and speak a language that I knew very well. So therefore to be able to understand customers' needs and what's good and bad about cars and it, what, what, what I was very good at to begin with was just understanding what was right for people because I knew the cars so well and That's right. putting um, those two things together. But um, everything's a learning curve and um, I, I found that I had to work hard at it, but you know, the harder you work, the you loved it. Yeah. It was your passion, yeah. so it came naturally. For sure, yeah. You mentioned opportunities presenting themselves. Further down in your career, where did you feel that happened again that perhaps created the next breakthrough for you? Um, so I think every time I got an opportunity, I felt grateful for it. And, and when you say, and when I, when I say I got an opportunity, you have to create those opportunities, you have to know what you want, and you have to put your hand up. And there were times where I put my hand up for opportunities and, and got overlooked. But then when I did get, get given the opportunities, that made me even more grateful and even more hungry to, to prove myself. Um, so I actually think all the way through were significant steps. And in a car dealership, you kind of go from salesperson or the route I went, then business manager, you become finance specialist, used car sales manager, general sales manager, and then you ultimately um, move onwards to, to lead businesses. But in between, there was a significant step for me where I became a, 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 a group finance manager, which 
essentially meant I worked for a large dealer group and I looked after 28 sites and I looked after their, their business managers within each, each business. And it allowed me to see a large cross-section of businesses and understand what was good and what was bad and you know, why businesses were a success. And that was probably my most important stepping stone before running a business mm-hmm. in its entirety. Mm-hmm. So the amount of learning, collective learning I did by seeing all those businesses and getting access to um, perhaps a different level of thinking within the business, just yet for me that was, that was probably quite transformational. The downside is it involved loads and loads of driving, just unbelievable commuting, um, but it was worth it. Commuting from where you used to live, or yeah, exactly right. That I, I ended up doing sixty thousand miles a year for two years, solid, and and being in businesses for when they open, having travelled one hundred and fifty miles to get there, and you know long days. But um, it, you know, I knew it. I knew I knew it was for the right reasons. Yeah. So this is your path in acquiring those experiences and learning on the job to be welcomed in this dealership. How, how did this come about? So how I came to HWM was that um, I had already run two Aston Martin dealerships and I, I guess I'd sort of got to a point where beyond that I'd become a specialist in turning around businesses and improving them and HWM is the most fantastic business but it was at a point where it was finding, it was finding the market very difficult and I got recommended by Aston Martin to come and meet Mike and Andrew Harting who were the owners of the business at that point and I came down to see them on a Sunday and they showed me around the business and showed me the history and not only did I instantly know that I could work with Andrew and Mike Mm -hmm. but I fell in love with the business and everything it stood for and it was an opportunity to step outside of large dealer groups and, and own part of a business and feel like I was invested long-term in a business. Um, So that that was a significant thing for me. And and HWM is is unique. So I recognized that it it, it was, again, an opportunity where it just couldn't be replicated. Couldn't be replicated. Phenomenal. So now you've um, with Aston Martin and the car as the brand, there's no... I mean, there are so many luxurious cars, but Aston Martin is certainly one of those that represent luxurious lifestyle. There's also this timeless sculptural beauty with this strong streak of confidence, how I liked, I'm sure I picked it from some of um, the newspapers. So what, what makes Aston Martin stand out for you? Okay, so it's interesting that the way I see cars is very technical. I see. So bizarrely, so Aston Martin make very beautiful cars. But actually on my list of what I like about a car, how it looks is quite low down. How interesting. So I, I love Astons for different reasons. So plenty of people are attracted initially to an Aston because typically they are, they are just so beautiful. Yeah. But for me, I look at a car from an engineering point of view, how it drives, how it sounds, how it feels. That's the most important thing for me. I like, it, it's the driving experience. Mm-hmm. And there's something about an Aston Martin that um, is, uh, uh, it, it, it's a car that, that I think sucks you in. It's a car that, um, from an emotional point of view, it's a car that you can, you can really form a strong bond with. Um, but from a, a driver involvement point of view, that's really important to me. It, it, it delivers. Um, 
But what I also love about the brand is I love the, um, the reserved beauty that it has. And what I mean by that is there's some fantastic brands around building beautiful, beautiful cars at this level. I mean, they're all wonderful. Um, but I, again, personally, it reflects my values. I, I like to be a little bit more understated. And so the, where an Aston Martin sits in the world, for me, is a good place. And when you own an Aston, you, you notice that. So the bizarre thing is you drive an Aston and people let you out of a junction regularly. <laughs> and that matters. And people give Respect. you the thumbs up. Yeah, <laughs> rather than other hand, hand signals. And I, I, um, I, I can remember, it did make me chuckle, I, I, I can remember pulling up to, um, to some roadworks last year. There were some guys working on the road and um, pulled up in an Aston Martin Vanquish, which is a great car. Mm-hmm. And the guys were working on the road and then suddenly they spotted the Vanquish and there was four of them. They said, look, look at the Vanquish. So all of a sudden, they all stopped work, turned around and did that oh, as I drove past. <laughs> and it was kind of tongue in cheek. It was funny, but it just, it just really made me laugh. But, but people are just, you know, they just love the cars. And, um, you know, they wanted to hear it blast off, and, yeah, which, which I, I obliged with. And, but, but it's great. You know, you, you get that with Aston. There's so much warmth and goodwill felt towards the brand. That's, that's quite special. You can't buy that. Where does it come from? What do you think helped to build exactly that amount of respect? What did Aston Martin do right? So they, they have, um, first of all, starting principles. Um, they call it golden, golden proportion. And, and if you look at the, the stance, the overall form of their cars, they're just very beautiful. But um, the way that they achieve performance is, is in an understated way. And what I mean by that is if you have a look at our range, we do use, use wings and spoilers on occasion, but actually the majority of our cars, we've been very clever, for example, with aerodynamics. So underneath the car, there's a lot going on so that there aren't big wings on top. Mm-hmm. And again, that, that sort of understated brutality that, that some of our cars have, it, it, it's that sort of um, clever, smart design that is, it's not ostentatious, but it is... Um, full of vigor and potential, you know. I love how you describe it. You can just tell the the passion, and I'm sure petrol heads listening to this episode and non-petrol heads would certainly get a great pleasure out of this interview. You talked about how you see Aston Martin, for example, that is all for you, um, understated beauty. You talked also about how your career was measured, your success, that it's very easily measurable in terms of your hitting your goals. But how do you personally measure success? What is success for you? So it's an interesting question. I, I think for me, success is being able to have some control in your life and choose what you want to do. And, um, you know, I, I've worked very hard to establish myself so that I can I can choose where I want to work and, and do what I want to do. Um, uh, and that feels like an enormous luxury. I actually think stats and KPIs, they come and go. And, you know, if you're, if you're great this month, you might have a hard month next month. And likewise with years, you get good years and bad years. And that, that all averages out over time. But actually, the fundamentals are is whatever you're doing in life, if you can create an element of 
um, control and feel like you are in charge of your life rather than life dictating where your life life is going. I think that that's the most important thing. You like that autonomy. Yeah. When you are at your best, what gets you there? Um, I, I actually think it's it's for me it's not a question of being at my best. It's a question of consistency and determination. So um, everybody has good days and bad days. I definitely have good days and bad days. But sometimes you've just got to show up and just keep on trying. Right. And you fight through that. So so for me, uh, that is the most important thing. It's, it's, it's determination and consistency. What routines um, personally you have to maintain that level of consistency to force yourself on the days when you're not perhaps feeling that way to turn up, work hard and be present? What routines in your personal life help you get there? So a real fundamental for me is fitness. Mm -hmm. And it's probably, I'd actually consider it to be um, a non-negotiable in my life. So um, I make sure that I work out every day before work. Mm -hmm. Um, And you're a passionate cyclist? Yeah, I I, I love cycling. Um, I love running. But I also, um, you know, do quite a bit of gym work as well, and that kind of works because, it, it, like many people, I'm, I'm I'm tight on time. You know, I'm I'm time poor, so I tend to get up early before work, and then I'll work out. But that does a number of things for me because I I feel that it gives me strength and endurance to keep on going. It gives me more energy, but also it's a stress release. You know, that, that right. it allows me, if I work out before work, I can just sort of feel a level of calmness um, afterwards. And so for the rest of my day, it gives me a level of clarity. And that's the other thing that it really does, is that it pumps oxygen uh, and you get oxygen to the brain and you can just feel you're, um, you're far more alert. So, yeah, I mean, for, 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 from my point of view, that is something that really works. But it, even for, for some people, that that that. That's not great. It, it doesn't work for them. And it might be taking 10 minutes to meditate before work or, or something where, you know, you start the day right and you do something for you and take that sort of control of your day. Because if you if you start the day right, you're on the right trajectory straight That's off. Right. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like you've got it, so many things figured out. You know exactly what works for you. And being the 5 a.m. clubber <laughs> early rises for you. Um, that's my personal inspiration. I function the best when I manage to wake up early. It doesn't always happen, so. Well, I, uh, but I think the trick is not to be too hard on yourself. You know, I, I think um, some people wear the early morning club as a badge of honour. For right. me, for me, I, I, I don't. I, but I, it's where I can carve out some time, and that that kind of works for me. Precious, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it is, but I think no matter what, it, it's just a case of one trying to trying to be consistent, and two to remember that it's it's super tough for everyone. So you know, if I get up early, I I do you know what? I'm not a morning person. Are you not? I'm not a morning person, but I just kind of think right. Just I've just got to make this happen, and and there is never a day. I know there's never a day when I finish a workout and think from a, from an early start and think I wish I hadn't done that yeah. I always think I'm glad I did that yeah 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 so the push through the initial resistance yeah yeah there is one other tip though that I have Please for share. early start so one of the, the the things that I found that that 
is is vital is to hydrate yourself first thing in the morning. So so I'm not a morning person. I get out of bed and I I really don't want to be up. And then I the first thing I do is I drink a pint of water. And within a minute or two, I can feel myself energised because you, you know you dehydrate overnight. So yeah. that would be my my tip. Fuel for the brain. Yeah. Amazing. What other hobbies do you have, Guy? Right. So well, I I. I Cars and motorbikes and motor <laughs> things dominate my life. Dominate, yeah, right. yeah, absolutely. So, <laughs> so you know that that is a big part of what I do, and and definitely things like cycling. The problem with that as a hobby is there's if you if you cycle, it takes a long time, it takes up a big chunk of chunk of my life. So that those are the primary things that that, that um, recreationally. You, you cycle to work, don't you? I, I, I do at times, yeah, at times, yeah, and I motorcycle. Uh, cycling to work is best done at the weekends because the traffic's quieter. So if I, if it's a nice day and it's a Saturday, then I'll I'll cycle to work, and that's a just seventy mile round trips with with plenty of big hills in between. So it's a, yeah, it's a good workout. Of course, because you work on weekends as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> non-stop, non-stop. Now it's time to announce details of the competition to win the Silverstone Aston Martin driving experience in an Aston Martin Vantage one of the most iconic British sports cars. The experience will take place at the Silverstone Racetrack in the UK on one day from April 2023 onwards and will include three 15-minute driving sessions plus one hot lap in advantage or up to 90 minutes multiple sessions in your own Aston Martin. A light lunch and refreshments are included as well as the help of Aston Martin instructor. All you need to do is subscribe to Beehive Podcast and share the link to this episode either on LinkedIn, Instagram or Facebook. And finally, DM the screenshots of the above two steps to my Instagram account at Natalia Lloyd Interiors. The competition will close at midnight on Friday 18th of November 2022 and the lucky winner will be announced shortly after that on my Instagram. So good luck to all! We are in this special corner of the dealership to talk a little bit more about the history of the brand, about the heritage which takes such a prime spot. HWM was the first British racing team to find international success after World War II and it was almost forgotten after that. So people talk about the racing heritage, but what's, that, what's your take on that? Well, I mean, we, we do we have this most incredible history. So we first of all we we've been we've been in this building since the Second World War, but we were founded in 1938 by a gentleman called John Heath. Um, around that time, our other founder, George Abacassus, just before the war, um, went off to be a pilot. So John was the most incredible engineer. So he, um, as part of the war effort, stayed back in the UK and helped with engineering. But George is a really interesting character to me. I mean, he's he's the most remarkable hero, but an amusing guy as well. George, first of all, being already an accomplished racing driver, naturally um, gravitated towards being a pilot, and so he um, he joined the joined the RAF and became part of the bomber squadron. Now, this was an incredibly dangerous era. This was a period where the um, the likelihood of you coming back alive was 40% chance from a bombing raid. 
George, being the talented guy that he was, flew 26 raids and survived. So that was his first introduction to World War II, and it gives you um, a bit of an idea of the calibre of the man um, and, and why, as a business, we have been so resilient. He then um, started teaching pilots, which he did very well in recognition of his ability, but frankly found it a little boring in comparison to flying bombing raids. And so he then became a, um, uh, a member of the secret operation executive. And this was an absolutely elite and ultra secret um, squad of pilots that used to go and fly low level flights um, over enemy lines to take supplies, to pick up important dignitaries, help with spies, all sorts of really undercover bits. Um, it, they were also known as the Moon Squadron. And these guys, in these um, aircraft, typically for, for George it was a Sterling, there would be George flying at low level, and the reason why they were called the Moon Squadron was because they would fly when there was a full moon so that they could see, or heart, they, they had half a chance of seeing where they were going. And George would have to do all of his um, plotting of his route um, himself, because it was literally him and a gunner at the back. They had no other ammunition or anything on the aircraft. So they were incredibly vulnerable. It was hugely dangerous, but he, he was superb at it. Um, but he ended up getting shot down in the end. He actually had, at this point, he had six people on board and he managed to land the aircraft at night. Um, and the way he successfully landed it was because it was on fire. So he could see the ground and yeah, I mean, fair play. He got wow. he got the aircraft down into the ground in one piece, and everybody survived. Um, but unfortunately, the gunner at, at the back, the rear gunner, who had been shot during uh, during the fight that took them down, so um, they tried to escape, but he ended up being a, uh, a prisoner of war and sat out the rest of the war um, in a as a, a POW. So um, so that was George, and when George came back from. Uh, World War Two. He went to a dinner party with John Heath. There was an infamous dinner party. That's the dinner right. party. Yeah, that's all he could think about whilst he was in prison, memorizing the menus and uh, was actual foodie as well as the passionate pilot and driver. Yeah, you're right. So, so George, George had quite a, a lavish lifestyle before the war, and what got him through when he was being given his one potato a day, was thinking about all of those great restaurants, writing down the menu. I, I mean, it sounds sounds like torture to think about of all those wonderful restaurants and their, their menus, but it, boredom right. was another problem during the war. So it just kept his mind ticking over. But coming back to the UK and meeting John, they, they decided that they wanted more action. And it's amazing to think the, these guys that have experienced already so many um, dangerous, dangerous situations that they wanted to embrace that and go out and do something um, usually dangerous such as such as motor racing but that that was their plan and they wanted to build their own race cars uh, and that's where HWM really got going and you're quite right they were the most significant British race team post World War II and that was really because they were nimble they were active 
and they went out and they did lots of races and it was kind of hand to mouth, a real David and Goliath situation, but as a small race team, we managed to get ourselves on podiums and achieve things that were probably um, beyond what a business of this size should have achieved. There was a lot of um, money management or financial management behind being able to take part in those races, um, being just post, post-war they really were running on tight budgets with a lot of passion and dedication and having to be very strict, didn't they? I, I mean, unbelievably so. Yeah, exactly right that, that post-World War II, there, there really wasn't a lot of money around. Um, John and George, as gentlemen, had more money than average, but they didn't have motor manufacturer money. So absolutely, they had to run um, the race team on a super tight budget. But what enabled them to keep going was in Europe with the races that were set out you'd get paid start money so right. it was treated as a really commercial um, activity in, in mainland Europe and the organizers of these races really wanted great racing drivers and cars to turn up so they would pay the teams to um, to come and race so that that allowed HWM to race all over Europe collect the start money, do the race, and that funded the next race and the next race. But it, it really was hand to mouth. Um, but the other thing that they were good at was spotting young talent. Correct. And the beauty of spotting young talent is it, it, talent when it's a bit younger tends to be a bit more cost effective. Um, but they've had so many amazing um, members of their race team. It, the most famous for us would be Sterling Moss. And, when Sterling was spotted by John and George, he was a privateer in Little Cooper. And he was clearly very talented and they offered him a contract. So Sterling carried out his first proper job as a racing driver at HWM. Um, and he raced for us for two years and helped us achieve things that we probably wouldn't have otherwise. Phenomenal. So being able to spot the talent, raise it, grow it, and for that to become part of the history and make the brand work, fantastic. What other milestones you reckon in history helped HWM to become what they are now? Well, racing first of all for us, I'll tell you how racing kind of um, came to its end but also critically how we became an Aston Martin dealer. So we're talking about at the moment, late 40s through into the 50s, we were an active race team. What was also happening was George, as a very talented driver, not only raced for HWM and was one of the founders of HWM, he also was racing for Aston Martin. And in 1950, he was asked to race at the Le Mans 24 hour. Mm-hmm. And George was assigned a factory prepared DB24 and a young driver called Lance Macklin. And George and Lance went to Le Mans and George quickly understood that Lance was a fabulous talent. So as a, a combo, they were unbeatable and they won the 1950 Le Mans in, in class, which achieved two things for George. One, he um, secured the Aston Martin franchise and in 1951, we became an Aston Martin dealer, and that makes us the oldest Aston Martin dealership in the world. The other thing it did for George was he spotted 
another young talent, and that was Lance Macklin, who came to race for us and was probably our most loyal racing driver out of all of them, and a personal favourite of mine. Um, That's a, right. A real <laughs> character. Um, so so that, that was a significant, pivotal moment. Guy, we talked so much about the heritage and the importance of the racing and how it all started for HWM. Mm-hmm. Why the team does not compete today? Well, yeah, it's a good question. So the 40s and 50s was an enormously dangerous time in motor racing. I mean, these guys, if you look in some of the pictures, there are there's no rollover hoops on the cars. There is no seat belts. Um, basically, they were sitting on um, fuel tanks and um, Yeah, it it made it a very, very dangerous um, way to earn a living. And there was fatal in most cases, isn't it? Usually so. I mean, the reason why they don't have seatbelts was the idea was because they were so combustible as vehicles. um, The theory was that it was better to be thrown away from the car than than be strapped in it. So, uh, yeah, absolutely, accidents happened, and for HWM, they campaigned all the way through the first half of the 50s and there were there were accidents and and so on but a, a couple of really significant things happened um first of all in 1955 i i mentioned lance macklin one of our most loyal drivers well lance was involved in what is the biggest racing disaster ever and that was at le mans and that year he was driving round to the start finish straight and just in front of him mike hawthorne made a last minute dash for the pits. And so Lance had to make a a last minute turn to to avoid um, hitting the back of Mike Hawthorne's car. And that year, Mercedes-Benz were dominating. And there was a driver called LeVay who was coming round to the start-finish straight at very high speed. And he hit the back of Macklin's car and turned over and went into the crowd. And over 80 people lost their life in, in that incident. And quite understandably, it weighed heavily on Lance. Right. So that was the beginning of, of, of thinking, yeah, this is, this is seriously dangerous. The following year, 1956, John, who was also a very good driver, had entered the Mille Miglia with this car here, HWM1. So this is a thousand kilometer road race in Italy. And it, it was done on open roads in all weather conditions. And I think John already realised it was going to be a dangerous race. We competed uh, many times in the Mille Miglia, but this year I think he had this impending sense of doom. And the night before the race, he wrote out his will on a napkin with a race team, got them to sign it. Um, he clearly could feel this sense of foreboding. And the next day, the weather conditions were horrendous and these guys they they keep on driving regardless of visibility and so on and he had a terrible accident which um uh, yeah it unfortunately led to him losing Most his life nice. so we're at a point now where mid 50s um we we've got one of our most loyal drivers loyal racing drivers falling out of love with racing we've lost the real mastermind behind the engineering and so george wanted to focus on the Aston Martin side of the business. But he did have one last attempt at pivoting, and that was to build an HWM road car. 
And it was a project that he lavished lots of time on, lots of money on, and created this beautiful big coupe. And it was the fastest car in the world at its point. But frankly, it became so expensive, it was, um, it was unsaleable almost. So it became one of one, and that was that was really where we ended our, um, our 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 own manufacturing of cars. But the interesting thing is, car number one, the HWM Streamliner and the HWM Coupe, now both live in Germany. They're both still being used, and weirdly, just by coincidence, they're five miles from one another. But it's lovely to know that they're they're still being raced and enjoyed today. That's incredible. I wanted to talk specifically about exotic cars and you guys master the definition of what exotic is. I wanted you to enlighten me further on the subject and what other cars are there to draw specifically attention to. Well, I, I think one thing is for certain, if you have been a car dealership at this end of the market for a long period of time, so many incredible cars have come through our doors and you can't keep them all. Mm -hmm. It's just the way it goes. But um, probably the one model we would have loved to have kept um, was the DB4 GT Zagato. Now, they only made 19 of these for the world. And at this period, which would have been 1962, 1963, um, they, they were actually very tough to sell. So they were about six and a half thousand pounds each, which was more than the average house price at that point. Um, they were enormously expensive, so they were beautiful exotica, but in general, people didn't spend that sort of money on, on cars. And this is back to the 60s? Back to the 60s. Right. So six and a half thousand pounds each, and Aston had the last three of the 19 just sitting, frankly, collecting dust at the factory. Mm -hmm. And Mike Harting, our um, chairman, Mike was with the business from 1958, 2021. Mike um, went to Aston and said, look, you've got these three cars. I'll take them off your hands. I'll buy them and I'll sell them at HWM. Which was, it, you know, that was quite a courageous deal. That There was a lot of money involved. Um, but he bought the three cars and then he put this advert in Autocar magazine, which describes the performance and um, and how racy the car is and how wonderful it is for traveling across Europe. And do you know what? it did the trick and he sold all three. Um, he was a wonderful salesperson um, as well as head of business. And, you know, if we had those three cars still sitting around today, they'd be worth 15 million pounds each. 15 million pounds? Yeah. Wow. Do you do you track where they are, where the ownership? Yeah, they're, they're all all trackable, um, and ultimately, it, it, because they are such rare, valuable cars, no matter what, they'll always be looked after and get rebuilt. And so, even if if one's in a horrendous accident, it would still be rebuilt and preserved. And so, I I would imagine those cars should, in theory, always exist. Always exist. So, yeah. if one ever decides to buy it off for fifteen million the repair service may come with it, some sort of guarantee. <laughs> Quite possibly, yeah, yeah, yeah. Guy, thank you very much for a little tour, so much depth and so much history that you've shared with me and my audience. Um, I absolutely loved it. I've learned so much. And to wrap up our interview, I want to ask you a few blitz questions that hopefully will be fun and lighthearted. What's your favorite quote? 
Um, I think it's probably, uh, it's a Simon Sinek one, and it would be, you can tell a lot about a person by how they treat somebody who can do nothing for them. You had to experience that in your life a lot, judging people by that quote? No, I, do you know what? I just think it's a reflection of um, character. I think it's a reflection of how you see people. And I think it's important that there's some people in the world that it, almost see relationships as tools and ways to get things done and way things to make things happen. For me, I, 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 I see relationships as a little different, really. Have you always had that from the beginning or because you're very accomplished now you you know any goal that you possibly set for yourself you've achieved when you started off is that something you lived by as well Yeah I, I I'm just an average person and <laughs> and I I've always very been average modest, very but, modest But the reality is you know I I am you know I I was I was just okay at school and um, I don't have any outstanding talents other than I've just kind of consistently applied myself. Um, I, you know, so I'm just, I'm just normal. I work with great people and I work with people who are more talented than me. So, you know, it, in that respect, you, it, it's really important that you, you appreciate everybody who works in a business or everybody you meet in life because we all have different attributes and yeah, I value that. It's um, we, we met a few times, but the um, the ease of talking to you and the respect and how you um, you know conduct yourself is actually um, I must say you're very understated in that sense and very modest. So I really appreciate um, having this interviews with you and getting to know you and your business and your achievements. So it's a fantastic quote, and I can see how you live by it 100%. One superpower that you'd like to have? Do you know what? I, the superpower I would love to have is um, a photographic memory. I know it's not really a superpower, <laughs> but wow, life would be so much easier if I just remembered everything. So um, yeah, the, the amount of stuff that's gone in here mm. and then disappeared forever. Disappeared. Right. Yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, that, that would just be the best. Is yeah. there some specific area what you would like to have that photographic memory for? Well, yeah, okay, so here's something really simple that f forever frustrates me about myself is that I'll meet people and they'll say, oh, hi, I'm David, gone. Gone. You know, like in a moment. <laughs> and, and I just, I, I hate myself for that disappearing. Yep. So, um, yeah, I, and maybe it's to do with some people are more visually orientated yes. and I'm maybe busy memorizing, yep. but, but nevertheless, I... Um, yeah, I would love to just be able to capture everything that, that, that comes my way. I can so relate to the name scenario. <laughs> Tasks you'd like to outsource? Well, I, um, I try not to be too bothered about um, paperwork and all those sorts of bits in as much as I'm, I'm all right with it. Um, I, um, I don't think there's any aspect of, of, of my work or job that I would desperately want to outsource. But I tell you what I would like to do is I'd like to spend more time with people. And so I... So, I, I, so you have to outsource something. So you got, yeah, so yeah. I, guess, I guess the paperwork's got to go, but it, it, doesn't, it doesn't frustrate me or irritate me. It's just if I could spend more time interacting, whether it would be with our customers or indeed with people who work in the business, that, that would be great. Phenomenal. Your dream place to live? 
The real thing for me is I'm an outdoorsy person. So um, I would like to live somewhere with a consistent climate and a great climate. So I guess somewhere like San Diego, where there's um, great all-round weather throughout the year, that, that would work for me. Yeah, the weather aspect makes UK quite challenging it <laughs> environment. It does. <laughs> Top choice for a famous house guest, and it can be current or historic figure. So um, I would love to uh, have George Abacassus, one of our founders, round for dinner. Now, I never got to meet George. Sadly, he died before I joined the business, but I've heard so many amazing stories about him, and a lot of them are really funny. He was such a character, um, and he was a hero as well. I mean, he, he, he was a bona fide, genuine hero and an epic racing driver and kind of knew all the greats of his era. Um, I think I could talk to him endlessly. So, yeah, that, that he would be my ideal dinner guest. Fantastic. Guy, thank you so much on this note. We're going to wrap up our interview. I cannot thank you enough for this, for all the highlights and sharing um, a bit of your success story and the dealership as well. Thanks for coming to HWM. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Beehive Podcast. Don't forget to like, subscribe and share. Bye now till the next episode. Look after yourselves and your loved ones.